1: Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, it's been a minute since he's here, but he is back. He's back with a He's all fired up about this one. We're going to talk a little Latino. We're going to talk a little Latinx. We're going to talk a little Chicano. We're going to talk a whole lot of Texas, so deep from the heart of Texas. My friend, Gary and Frankel, how are you, sir? Good to have you back.
0: Hey, Good to be back. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm doing well.
1: I always enjoy talking to you, my friend. Okay, um, the Latinx thing Let's just parse it out this way. You have a great piece out in the James G. Martin Center about it, but let's just parse it this way. We saw the census data. We know the Latino numbers in America from the census data. They're not the largest group demographically growing. That would be Asian Americans. But buried in that data is, I think, the core of this problem. The growing Latino population in America is not only growing. We found out from the census, it's also one of the most diverse populations. In America. Isn't that just kind of the core problem of this is we have a buzzword for Latino and then everybody puts things on it, but this is really a diversifying demographic.
0: Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. That that definitely does get at the heart of the issue. Some um, just to give a short illustration, somebody who is Mexican American living in South Texas is going to be completely different from someone who's Cuban living in Miami, and they're both going to be completely different than somebody who's Puerto Rican and living in the Bronx. And there, and while there are some labels that are broadly acceptable like hispanic or latino the seeming effort to put everybody into one team or one camp has caused a lot of hostility among people of hispanic origin like myself and you know as much as the left talks about colonialism and imperialism it's essentially what they're doing by trying to compartmentalize an entire group of people.
1: Yeah. This actually sparked something when I was reading your piece and I had to go dig for it because I got, you know, uh, brain damage. So I forget things, but we have Google to fill in the blanks. I found it. I went back and looked an NPR article back from 2021. When the census data came out, all the the demographic geeks kind of lost their mind because something like 50 million American marked some other race, And then when they dug into the numbers, I'm reading from NPR here, nationwide, some 45 million Latinos recorded as identifying with a mysterious alternative to what the federal government considers to be the major racial groups. 45 million of them mark some form and fashion of some other race, but then they go and talk to people. They have a a gentleman named Alvarez. He He said, well, I didn't see Hispanic and I didn't see Guatemalan, so I put some other race. Uh, They have another guy who's Cuban, same thing. He's like, well, I didn't see Cuban or Floridian, which I thought that was really hilarious. He said Floridian. Uh, He said, so I went some other race. People are going to self-identify how they want to identify. Is this one of those things where the government is not keeping up with the diversification of a large pluralistic society? Because 45 million Latinos saying the government isn't identifying us correctly. I think we're seeing pretty quickly where academia and then academia floods in the government pretty quickly. You know this, you're one of those academic people right now. Those those two people talk a lot. Those folks in the Rio Grande Valley and Little Havana in Miami, they don't talk a lot. And that's where that shows up, isn't it?
0: Uh, To a certain extent, yes. I think everybody in the scenario that you just described is talking, but the problem is that they're not talking to each other all the academics and the government elites are talking to one another and they're using their words and their compartmentalizations to describe tens of millions of people, whereas the tens of millions of people that they're attempting to describe have their own ideas, their own identity, and their, and how they see themselves are, is not reflected on the Census Bureau. I mean, I put... Whenever my family is putting on putting on the sentence for um, my mother, my for my mother and I anyway, and we mark white and Hispanic or Latino. But if we had an option to put down Texan, we would,
1: (laughs) you know, I get you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm as Caucasian as Caucasian gets, you know, I'm a hillbilly from West Virginia. But I we run into this because like when I when I lived out West, everybody thought, you know, if you have an accent, you come from Texas for whatever reason. But if I'm in the South, people think, oh, you're Southern. I'm like, well, no, I'm Appalachian. That's a whole distinct, different beast. Um, It covers part of the South, but that goes, you know, parts of Maine, really, depending on which definition you want to use. I'm like, you know, I'm a West Virginian. I'm a hillbilly. I'm an Appalachian-American. Those are all real distinct, meaningful things to me. I've never seen any of those on any government form ever. You know, it's always Caucasian. So this isn't just a Latino thing or a white thing or a black thing or an Asian thing or whatever. Do we have something where we just have a hard time talking about identity in a meaningful way? Is this, is this a government problem? Is it a cultural problem? What do you think we need to do to kind of do a little bit better with this? Because identity, we've seen it with culture war stuff, identity is really, really important to people, and they get twisted about it really, really fast if you get it wrong.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a government problem. It's a culture problem. It's all of the above. And while I think that there are individual organizations and institutions that have found some kind of solution, I remember um, back in high school when I was submitting my uh, application to be a National Hispanic Merit Scholars a long time ago already. But at the time, they were already able to categorize it based on pretty much any type of Hispanic identity that somebody might come up with. They had pretty much every country of Hispanic origin on there. And that, you know, that's a better model in that sense. But the problem with some of these models that work is that you can't, Expand them to occupy everything, everybody, and everything, because there's also the argument on the other side that, to a certain extent, for data collection study purposes, you do have to categorize people, and you can only have so many categories before everything just gets really chaotic.
1: Yeah, Gary and Frankel joining us on Herd Tell back again. It's been a minute, man. It's been too long. We'll have you back on sooner. I promise. Uh, you use a great example from your own family, uh, the Chicano culture down in especially texas new mexico the border areas this is a distinctive thing it has its own music it has its own culture uh it's even got language variations now that they've identified when you went to write about this with latinx you kind of you know went home to kind of explain this to folks explain to people who may not be familiar with it uh chicano culture what that means to you as somebody that claims that identity Just kind of explain it to people and then why that's so important to you when you go to talk about something like a Latino, Latinx labeling.
0: Yeah, well, just for some historical background, the Chicano movement was very strong among Mexican Americans living in the southwestern border regions, specifically about 50, 60 years ago. And it started as a social movement to um, rectify political and economic injustices. And you know we talk a lot about injustices and justice now. but there are some real problems going on in the area in the area. There was a critical systemic lack of political representation in these areas. You still had lingering effects of segregation. You had no services whatsoever in public schools for kids and their families who had just come over the border from Mexico, spoke little, if any, English, And suddenly you had to adjust and account for these individuals and the systems and institutions at the time weren't doing that. So the Chicano movement really had three goals. And one was improving political representation. One was improved labor rights, specifically for farm workers. And the third was to Uh, increase Spanish language representation in public schools. So what you have is a defined movement with very, very targeted individuals that subscribe to the identity being invoked, and they had real political goals that were tangible and had benefits for normal people outside of the academic and political elite and when you look at the latinx movement on the other hand you're dealing with a small nebulous group of people that for the most part only exist in academia and they're trying to change a fundamental aspect of a language into something that's completely incomprehensible in either spanish or english
1: yeah gary and frankel joining us so that's the 50 years of the 50, 60 years of the Chicano movement. Fast forward to the day and the Rio Grande Valley is ground zero for a real political kind of earthquake because I'm a little older than you. So I remember the 90s and 2000s when the Democratic Party was pushing demographics or destiny. Uh, the Republicans are guilty of this, too, but they, they kind of started it and then the Republicans reacted to it. It was, you know, all these various uh, groups of color and outsiders are going to come in and they're going to naturally become Democrats. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And our buddy Mark uh, Yazagiri has been writing about this at Ordinary Times. We'll link to it in the show notes. He pointed this out. We just saw this last week with Myra Flores flipping the 34th district for the first time since antebellum post Civil War, the first time a Republican won down there. And he pointed it out. He's like, you got to understand the Latino culture down here. The Latinos are the cops. The Latinos are the small business owners. They are the city councilmen. <clears throat> so you have the academics, which always skews way more progressive, are saying this one thing. You can't say defund the police because all the cops are Latino. How is that going to go? So it's not a wave movement kind of thing, but instead of 10, 11, 13% Latinos going more conservative or Republican, now it's getting that 28. 29 30 that's a big culture shift politically that you know we're talking about an academic terminology but that's where this stuff actually shows up and there's movement and it seems to keep growing same thing in south florida you know that you're starting to see 30 32 33 how does that feel for you as somebody who's in that area you're from that area you study in that area is is this really getting talked about locally? Like it, the national people are starting to catch on to it locally. Does it feel that way or does it feel just like a natural evolution?
0: Well, I, I will preface by saying that while my mom is from the border area, I grew up in Dallas. So even though it's the same state, you do have a little bit of uh, removal from it, but you know, real Dallas,
1: from- not South Fork Dallas, real Dallas, right?
0: <laughs> North Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about 20 minutes north of downtown. <laughs> but anyway, I got family down there. I got friends down there. I've been down there on plenty of occasions, and it feels completely different than it did just five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, I I used to have a much more active role in conservative politics in Texas before I went in the policy direction. But there is a saying that you know, Tejano's and Hispanics more broadly are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. Well, they figured it out. And I, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this happened. Some of it is firmly within the control or lack thereof of control of the Texas Democratic Party. Some of it had to do with outside factors. Some of it had to do with social media. But there is a real shift going on in South Texas, and I I think the last, I think the election of Maida Flores for one, as well as um, some of the municipal elections previously, proved that what we saw in 2020 is not going away. It's, It's already a durable shift, and I don't see any indications that it's not going to continue.
1: Yeah, Gary and Frankel, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about this. We're going to compare that Latinx movement to the Chicano movement again, real world versus academic problems. Also, Gary uh, deals with education a lot. And we're going to talk about the economic part of this because people talk demographics. Really what they need to be talking about is the economic uh, stratospheres of these folks. More with our buddy Gary and Frankel right after this on her tell. Welcome back to Hurt We were talking about San Antonio and getting wistful there for a minute, so sorry about that, folks. One of America's great cities, nobody – go to San Antonio. Just trust me. I've been there a whole lot over the years. Great, great city. But anyway, let's talk about that Texas thing a little bit. You wrote in your piece, James G. Martin Center. We link to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. But really the nut of this is the Latinx movement is an academic problem, you know, solution looking for a problem. The Chicano movement succeeded because, like you said, it was civil rights. It was voting rights. It was real world stuff. It was economic advantages. It was things like that. And that just naturally drove people because they're like, no, dang it. We deserve better and we're going to do it. That's really the heart of this, isn't it? Is because you have these natural movements for people that want their lives better. And then you have people that have lives where they're trying to find something to do with themselves to make things better. Is that just basically the basic nuts of this?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, I collection of academics, many of whom are white and very progressive politically, decided that the fact that Spanish is a gendered language, like so many other languages in the world, uh, was problematic and not inclusive to people who don't identify with the traditional gender binary. And so the solution in their minds, and it's unclear exactly where the word comes from, started popping up in a couple journal articles about 15, 17 years ago. It may have also started in an internet chat room. But whatever it was, it was a firmly academic problem for a solution that affects a very, very, very small amount of people. And the solution is to change an entire language, of course.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Romance Latin-based languages, which is a large portion of the you know Western-speaking languages, I, I, I'm perfectly happy to be respectful to anybody who asks me to do whatever they want language-wise and identity-wise and pronoun-wise. I got no problem. I'll, I'm happy to accommodate you however I can to make it happy. Here. But, you know, changing the language for three and four and 500 million people because of an O and an A on the end of the vowels, and I'm not real great at grammar. Um, I'm a community college kid. That, that just seems like such a gross overreaction to something. Um, and it's like you said with earlier with the Chicano movement, though. People want their jobs, they want their livelihoods, they want that. They just don't have time to really fool with a lot of stuff like that, do they?
0: No, they don't. And the people in Hispanic communities around the United States are extremely hardworking. Um very very insistent on reliability and personal responsibility very
1: family oriented very family
0: oriented um, usually
1: very spiritualistic whether it's you know the traditionally it was more catholic it's got trended more spiritualistic but very family oriented very spiritualistic very you know you know if you took it and put it in a bunch of white guys like me you would call those traditional conservative values right it's just, uh, yeah, it just it looks different
0: absolutely you would absolutely call them traditional conservative values, and then suddenly you have this small collection of progressive academics trying to, and of course many many if not most uh, people in those areas now are native English speakers, but even so you'll hear a lot of Spanish in those areas, and suddenly you've got... You've got the small groups of academics who want to change all of that because Latin X just sounds weird in English. And in Spanish, it would be like Latin Gen, Latin hedge, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the funniest part about all of this is that people who are non binary from the Spanish speaking world have developed their own alternatives for the traditional gender binary that make three times as much sense in both the Spanish and English languages, and yet nobody in the United States is paying attention to them at all.
1: Yeah, maybe we should just defer to them and let them pick their own thing and just go off that. I'm good with that. Um, Put your academic hat on for a second for me. Um, We know that not only do we have racial issues in America, the bigger problem is we just have no seemingly way to talk about racial issues in America. When it comes to the Latino population, Where are we at on the race relation edge of it? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is there still widespread discrimination? I, you know, the Rio Grande Valley is about as integrated Latino population. I think you're going to find about anywhere. I mean, you know, they, it, it just is like, it just, you know, I am that I am kind of stuff. Right. How should we be talking about this? Is there, I'm sure there's still problems there, but what are the problems What are the problems that were in the past that are new? Just kind of walk me through it. How should we be discussing the issues of race when it comes to Latinos in America, especially in an area like the Rio Grande Valley, that's going to be a real political hotbed probably for the next couple of election cycles?
0: Yeah, and it's hard because Hispanic and Latino origin, it's not a race, it's an ethnic origin. You can be Hispanic or Latino and white. You can be Hispanic or Latino and mixed. You can be Hispanic or Latino and black. And if you go to places like Argentina, there's a very healthy population of people who are of Hispanic origin and they're Asian. And that just adds an extra layer of complexity to talking about those issues in general. I mean, if you look at me, my last name is Frankel and I look about as Caucasian as they come, but nevertheless, I'm Hispanic. Um, When it comes to race relations, and I'm going to use these terms very generally between non-Hispanic whites and Hispanics, uh, they used to be a lot worse going back 60, 70 years. They were victims of segregation and oppression as well. But if you look at things nowadays, at least in everywhere that I've been, um, aside from the occasional racist idiot at Walmart who doesn't like hearing people speak Spanish, it's really not something that people talk or think about anymore. Um, Especially in somewhere like Texas, the Hispanic community has just become so integrated. And you can't really talk about Texas or Texan culture without talking about the Hispanic community that you don't really see a lot of those tensions or problems anymore.
1: Yeah. Gary and Frankel I'm glad you brought that up because of this reason. We just had Daniel Martino on the show a couple episodes ago and he made the same comment. He's like, look, Argentina, white kids, black kids. It's not an issue. Never even thought about it. I come to America. Now I got to think about it and it's right there and America deals with it differently. Uh, our buddy Holden, Dominican Republic, same thing. He's like, yeah, white kids, black kids, no big deal. Coming to America. All of a sudden, it's a problem. Um, we're getting ready to have, we're going to talk to one of our UK friends about this, you know, you know, race is problem and ethnicity problems. Those are universal things, but they really do manifest really, really differently based on your culture. And I would say, and I think, I think part of this that we want to circle back to where we started with the Rio Grande Valley and the Chicano culture is it, we, when we talk about race, we tend to disassociate it from class and economics, but you really can't. Because it all goes hand to hand, and the more economically diverse and the more economically raised the Chicano and Latino population has become, the less race problems you have. That's just the facts of the matter. Economic freedom is freedom, and it's also freedom from a lot of prejudice and racism because it empowers you. I think that's the angle of this that we just don't talk about enough. You have ties in that area does that feel the same way with you when you talk about the the idiot at Walmart? like eventually he just sees enough latino people he learns to get over it and grow up you know is that what this is on a practical level
0: yeah and even if he never learns to get over it and grow up at the very least he will learn to shut up um <laughs> no but when you look at the economic profile of the Rio Grande Valley it's small business owners it's people working in the oil industry it's law enforcement is a major employer in that area and it's very it, it constitutes a very similar economic profile to a lot of Texas that is majority non-Hispanic white and because of that the cultural and political differences between those areas are starting to evaporate a little bit and become more one and the same because you really it really isn't like going to a different world when you go from somewhere like the Dallas suburbs to the Rio Grande Valley you're still in Texas and you know that you're still in Texas it's still very texan and people don't recognize that enough and their obsession with identity, especially in
1: academia. Uh, Texas ain't subtle. We'll, we'll definitely give them that much Of it. Uh, Gary and Frankel, one last thing to kind of loop this back to where we started and put a bow on it. Um, we, we understand academics do things like this Latino, Latinx thing. We understand it becomes a political thing because of that. On the grassroots level, grassroots is the wrong word, on the, the Rio Grande Valley level at the Walmart level, let's call it that. Um, Where's the identity of those folks going? Like you said, like you would probably identify Texan and Latino and identify that way. This has changed a lot in the last five and 10 years, like you mentioned. What's the next five and 10 years hold for this demographic group, do you think?
0: Well, already, if you talk to a lot of the people down there, they I mean, sure, they're of predominantly Mexican origin. But if you ask them what they consider themselves, they're going to say Texan. They're gonna say American. And you know, that's a large chunk of the people there. And while I don't think that's necessarily going to change much in the next five to ten years because you already have a process that's happened. What I do think is going to change is that they're going to be a lot louder about it because suddenly they need to be a lot louder about it when it wasn't necessary previously.
1: Gary and Frankel, great stuff. I th- I think this is the healthier way for us to talk about things like race and demographics and ethnicities. You have to take it as an all of the above approach. You got to talk about the economics. You got to talk about the cultural. You got to talk about the historical, and then you go to the political. And I think too much of our discourse, we're doing that backwards where we start with the political and then you lose all the perspective. And then all of a sudden you get shocked and shaken when, you know, um, Myra Flores flips the seat and like, well, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. It's like, well, no, if you're paying attention, it was coming And it was like the steamroller in Austin Powers. It was coming slowly and (laughs) exhortably, and it finally got here. So I appreciate this conversation. We're going to keep having it Uh, until we get you back on Hertel again, which will be sooner than the four months it was this time, I promise. Uh, Let folks know where they can follow you, follow you on your social media and what you got going on, my friend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can follow my writing very frequently with Chalkboard Review and the American Institute for Economic Research. And as far as social media goes, um, my Twitter is literally my last name and then my first name, and I'm very active.
1: Unmute. There it we went. Uh, he's a Texas A&M guy too, so you can make a joke about how many uh, Gary and Frankles it takes to do light bulbs and so forth. That's up to you. Uh, but go ahead and get your shot in there. You are a graduate student at A&M, uh, Jimbo got a little rowdy a little earlier in the year, made some headlines. uh People are gonna go looking for you on the field this year. How's that gonna shake out? You think?
0: Uh, I love my coach. I'm, I'm just gonna <laughs> say that. <laughs> no, I think there are. I think that there's a lot of Aggies who have national championship expectations, and I I, I think it's a little early the early for that, especially with the quarterback situation being uncertain. But I think. I'd be happy with the 10 win season, 10 win season. I'm good. I don't need a natty this year.
1: Yeah. I, I, I tell people, people don't realize Sabin and Jimbo are both West Virginia boys and it goes way, way back to Glenville state college. And a lot of things that people just don't read about. And she like, I was like, you know in the old days you just take them out in the parking lot and leave them alone for five minutes they could have worked that out but now they're rich so you know we got to have a national discussion about it anyway all right Gary and Frankel thanks for the talk man love a little levity on a heavy topic at the end is always a good thing we'll talk again soon my friend
0: sounds good thanks for having me Andrew thank you